A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This week on Truth and Movies, Jim Carrey, James Marsden, and Ben Schwartz form a dream cast in the video game adventure Sonic the Hedgehog. I am living my best life on Earth. What? Ow! Let the place Sonic! Let the Pitcher's Mount also Sonic! Then Anya Taylor-Joy leads a new spin on Jane Austen's classic novel, Emma. Mr Elton, Miss Harriet Smith, he is in love with you. Who can think of Miss Smith when Miss Woodhouse is near? Mr Elton! And in Film Club, can two plumbers save the world from going down the drain? Find out in Super Mario Brothers. Get me the rock! Rescue the princess. Luigi! All coming up in Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Hello there, movie truthers. It's Michael Leader here, back in the host seat, sitting across this week from head honcho David Jenkins. Hey there. And another newcomer this week, Clarice Lockery. Welcome, Clarice. Hello, thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to have you here. Could you tell our listeners who you are and what you do? Yes, I'm the chief film critic at The Independent, that's the official title, and also I occasionally uh, am the guest critic on Commode and Mayo's film review oh. on BBC Five Live. So have you seen a little film called Parasite? What do you make of that? Yeah, I saw the little film called Parasite. Edit, yeah, it was... I mean, I can't really add to what everyone else has already Solid said. Solid film. Solid film. film. Well, we, were talking, <laughs> we were talking about his Oscar Decent. chances last week and said maybe in a more diverse or younger skewing academy it might win Best Picture, and then they went and proved us wrong. <laughs> does, does this mean that we now don't have to diversify the academy anymore? It's diverse enough. It's well, diver- it's, it's, we've done it. <laughs> this, yeah. is the, this is the absolute perfect point. So we've, we, we've yeah, it, we've won. You're saying it here, David. But we did, from another David, get a letter about that very topic saying... Can I take a tiny bit of an issue with what was said during the discussion about the Oscars? I agree 100% that the Academy needs to broaden its membership to make it younger and more diverse. But I'm taking issue with Hannah's comment, which suggested that younger audiences were, quote, more open-minded and willing to take a risk. David runs a community cinema, and he says, while we have a number of regular attendees in their 20s and 30s, the majority of our audience are probably 50-plus, and some are even in their 80s or 90s. Are they closed-minded? Well... David says he's been stopped in the street by a woman in her 90s with the words, Oh, David, the handmaiden, what a hoot. And he's overheard two septenarians discussing whether Bong Joon-ho's mother or Hirokazu Koreeda's afterlife were the best films they'd shown that year. David, you keep up the good work. That is fighting the good fight, right? 
Hell yeah. I mean, I, mean, I, 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 t- I totally, I kind of agree. I mean, it'd be, it'd be interesting to see some like hard data on like, you know, who is actually going to these films? Because mm-hmm. I think it's a, it is a bit of a mystery of like, you know, when, when we, you know, put these foreign language films on and, or, in, or sorry, international films on and uh, you have all these kind of younger skewing critics championing them, fighting the good fight. And then you, you do wonder who is actually going to see them in, in the end and, I suspect it is probably more kind of mature audience mm. maybe who have you know have more time on their hands and have more opportunity to see kind of more films during the week. Mm. Well, Parasite is is expanding to 400 plus cinemas this week, isn't it? So hopefully they'll publish some sort of stats on who's going to watch it. Certainly yeah. more people have the chance to Everyone in this case, I think. Yeah. But we have new releases to talk about. Forget about Parasite, we have the next best film of the year coming up <laughs> next. It's Sonic the Hedgehog. Based on the Sega video game franchise, Sonic the Hedgehog tells the story of the world's speediest hedgehog as he embraces his new home on Earth. Sonic and his new best friend Tom must team up to defend the planet from the evil genius Dr. Robotnik and his plans for world domination. I'm Sonic, a little ball of super energy in an extremely handsome package. On my planet, people were always after my powers. So I came to yours. It gets a little lonely. But that's okay. I am living my best life on Earth. What? Ow! Let the plate Sonic! Let the pitcher's mount also Sonic! Ugh, I can't with that guy. A clip from the trailer for Sonic the Hedgehog there. So, David, do you have much of a relationship with the Sonic franchise? Were you excited for a film finally about Sonic? Not really. I was, I, I, I've got, a, when I was a, a, a youngling, Way back when, I, I was more into the, the Mario Brothers side of things, so you know maybe we can get to that a bit later. Mm-hmm. But it's worth mentioning that a little bit of backstory on this film, because um, the production team behind this distributor released a trailer, an early trailer in early 2019, which bombed so badly in terms of reaction that they decided to plunge an amount of money, I'm assuming not a small amount of money, to re-digitize or, re- or or re-enhance or re-render the Sonic character in this film, who is pretty much in every... I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, he's in every scene virtually. So. Yeah. So, you know, probably probably a, a fair bit of work. I, I, I think it's to do... It was to do with the teeth. His te- he, he, it was a, it was a oh. Sonic character with human-sized <laughs> teeth. So also they... the body, because he looked like a man in a morph suit. It was like, you know, in the, the stupid, sexy Flanders, Ned Flanders in The Simpsons with the, like, ski and the butt, and it was like, yeah. it was that sort of, like, why are his... He was jacked. His calves are so, jacked like, Sonic. his calves are so shapely and... Um, and no longer. Uncomfortable. And so they took, they took it under advisement to redo everything, go back to the drawing board on it, and I do think it's pretty funny that they've done all that effort they made all that effort and the film itself is like awful i mean it's it's like you know it's smurfs sequel bad right it's it i mean it could be it could be a smurf sequel it's like the smurfs are in their magical land they go to earth they run around they go back and this the plot is exactly the same sonic is in his like you know fantasy world with all like loop de loops and everything and then he jumps through he has to escape some baddies and he jumps through a ring and he finds himself on earth and has some wacky adventures with with human friends who you know take pity on him um and it it it, it does i just couldn't believe watching it that you'd think 
if they're thinking, oh, we, we're onto something here. We've we've got a great film under our belts. Let's push it a bit further. Let's go back to the drawing board and make sure this one hits. And to do all that for this film just seems kind of absurd. I, I almost think they should have just cut and run with it, really. Um, there's a few bits of humour. Jim Carrey is kind of going full tilt Riddler mode. Um, you know, he, he feels like he hasn't been in anything for quite a long time, to be honest. Not on the big screen. He had that TV series that he made. Yeah, he did the Michelle Gond- no, Gondry. No, Michelle Gondry, yeah. So, yeah, he's going kind of very, it's very, very old school, like rubbery Jim Carrey performance. Just just not much going for the film, really. There's nothing to it. Clarice King's Hawkers back off this ledge, or would you agree? I think the only thing I would say, that what I liked about Jim Carrey is that it didn't feel like the Riddler. It felt like the Jim Carrey from Man on the Moon who went really method, but was somehow in a song. Because there's this strange anger to his performance. It's I found it really oddly intense for a kid's movie, because he he really felt like he was in that role and like feeling that like rage and because he's you know he's a megalomaniac scientist who loves drones and wants authority over everything and he sort of went like full on with the the rage which was an interesting choice it was the one thing i i kind of enjoyed about sonic was watching him just be so intense i think when he's on the screen definitely like you know it's it's a bit more interesting i'll give you that there's there's that sort of sequence where he's in his he's got this kind of military grade juggernaut that he drives around in with all his like drones in and uh there's this kind of montage of him like it's a kind of work montage set to music and it's quite it's quite amusing and he's doing all this funny stuff in front of like green screens and it completely superfluous to the film i mean you know it's entirely cuttable but actually it's like the most probably the most fun bit in the film it's very and in fact this is another thing like one of my other kind of conspiracy theories about this film as well was that I was thinking, mm, did they decide to redo Sonic or did they think, oh, this is too similar to the Spider-Man sequel with all the drones, the drone-heavy Spider-Man right. sequel? Because this is very drone-heavy as well. Like, it's all about, like, drones of the future. I'm just going to get my drones to do all my bidding for me. And... It's maybe a little bit too drone-tastic and like <laughs> had had it come out that too close to that Spider-Man film, unwelcome comparisons mm. may have been made. But this is this is a very far out conspiracy theory. Probably to not true, forget it. One of your ne- tinfoil hat moments. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll never know. You we'll can just know. you can just we'll take chalk it up as another one of it. It's something that you've proven here right now. Indeed. It's a franchise potential in this one. Think that we can see Sonic the Hedgehog two, three and beyond. No, well my big issue with Sonic is that I mean I never played Sonic because I never had a console but I know basic things about Sonic he collects rings and he runs fast and I feel like this movie had nothing to do with either of those things he doesn't really run all that much and the rings are portals they're not he's not collecting anything he just already has rings in a little tiny bag and he's using them as portals to jump around and it's just I I, maybe Sonic like hardcore Sonic fans would understand that but to me I was like I don't how is this Sonic? So what does he do then, if he's not running around and catching rings? He, he, there, there are some bits where that there's like they've tried to emulate him. You know how he kind of kills enemies by kind of you, jumping. You know, on you them. jump on him and he turns spinning into a, to a spinning ball and they they die. There's, they've tried to do a few things where they've emulated that idea, 
but quite badly. Like, there's not there's not much else yeah. to be honest. The, Why did the, the he running... just collect rings? Oh, That's, oh no! We've... Should be the movie. He has he has to get these rings. Go collect. Why did why it's right there? But there's another thing as well. There's another thing that 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 he does that I don't recall ever being part of the the computer game. There's this whole kind of theme, capital T, of loneliness in the film, and he's because he's 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 on Earth hiding out, and he hasn't got any friends, and he's he's basically stalking James Marsden's like local beat cop, and uh, and wants to be in his you know vicariously wanting to insert himself into his life and watches watches their sort of Friday night film through the window. And there's a sequ- there's this really weird sequence where he's like hiding out watching this little league baseball game and like thinking, oh, I wish I could be part of this little league baseball game. And when everyone's gone, he has this kind of rage out on the on the field where and he starts running running around the diamond and the, and causing this huge electronic storm basically that cuts the grid off on the on the entire west coast of America. Sorry, um, is it west coast? Yeah, west coast of America. And that's that's like. Why? Like, I mean, do, do you is that something you recall as a, as a as a Sonic? You you were a Sonic fan, I've, I assume. I've played Sonic games. I think they do. Have... Did he ever electrify and like cause like a kind of <sighs> Sonic certainly not boom in the almost? in the core? You know, four games that came out on the Mega Drive. I th- who knows with the with the latter day mm. uh, installments in the franchise, he might have that power because of course people now mainly know Sonic from the crossover games that he's in like he's in Smash Brothers he's in yeah. Mario and Sonic at the Olympic Games and so on so maybe he does have those abilities there but it's a real like you know it's a it's a sort of superpower where there's no there's no kind of explanation for it does it become it's, it's a very very like deus ex machina kind of moment where it's like we we just need a thing to happen here so he basically does something that where, that reveals himself so we can get Dr. Robotnik to huh, run Interesting. Well, this is, we're, we're, we're touching on territory here where it's uh, adapting a video game series where pretty much it's just abstract symbolism, isn't it? Just, you know, a hedgehog that runs fast and goes over loops and picks up rings. That's not narrative-based. How do we adapt that to the film? We'll talk about Super Mario Brothers later where you similarly have pipes and plumbers and mushrooms and how they translate that into a feature film but let's put some scores on Sonic David I'll come to you first in anticipation enjoyment in retrospect I would probably say my anticipation was was I, I think it's probably two because I think there was a sort of sneaking suspicion that it was going to that there was going to be a kind of, like I, th- I think the whole kind of we've re-rendered this thing got my interest up a little bit there was a there was definitely a reason to to see this one but yeah, it's probably going to be like a one and one and a half one. Do, you, do I, we do half stars? I, I know we don't do half stars, but there, there was one. Ve- there's there's one very funny joke that I laughed at that I don't want to spoil, and it it it, it basically is a sequence where they're sneaking Sonic into a into a building, in, and he's in a holdall. I won't say any more than that. And then one, uh, I would never go back to this. I'd, Seeing that it's basically kind of Smurfs light rip off, then I, I, I'm never going back. Clarice, what scores would you give this? Of course, we have three scores on this podcast. Three anticipation because of Jim Carrey's mustache. I enjoyed that, and then it's just a two and a two. It was. It made me think of um, the live action Rocky and Bullwinkle. Oh wow! <laughs> remember that was a movie. Wow. Yeah. De Niro. De Niro. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. De Niro I guess De Niro is the Jim Carrey. <laughs> yeah. He is actually. Movie. Yeah. No, he has that kind of. There is a sort of like Nazi chic vibe to to, to them both. Yes, it's yeah. It's kind of PVC Nazi. 
and kind of just oddly intense and yeah. strange for the medium. Oh, that's that is a that is a strong connection. Would yeah. you recommend that one over Sonic? Rocky and Bullwinkle. I remember not loving it, but I probably would definitely rewatch that over Sonic. I mean, Sonic just feels like cynical half-term filler to me. Uh, would you agree? Please? Yeah, there was flossing <laughs> in it, so. Yeah, there we go. There we go. Case closed. Case closed. That was Sonic the Hedgehog in cinemas this week. Up next, we have another new release for this week, Emma. Jane Austen's beloved comedy about finding your equal and earning your happy ending is reimagined in a new film adaptation of Emma. In the satire of social class, Emma, played in this version by Anya Taylor-Joy, must navigate her way through the challenges of growing up, misguided matches and romantic missteps to realise the love that has been there all along. Emma. Mr Knightley. This is your doing. She is the natural daughter of nobody knows. Sorry, Upon my word, you should not make matches. Whatever you say always comes to pass. Mr. Elton, Miss Harriet Smith, he's in love with you. Who can think of Miss Smith when Miss Woodhouse is near? Mr. Elton! Oh, dear. A clip from the trailer for Emma there. Of course, this is only one of many adaptations of Emma we've had over the years. Clarice, uh, did we need another one? I guess most people think that Clueless is the best. Yeah, and then there was the. There's been three different versions. There's Gwyneth Paltrow, Romola Garay, yeah. uh, Kate Beckinsale was in one. So it's been. I feel like no, right, <laughs> was my feeling going in, and I think especially where we are in the conversation to have another all-white adaptation of a very, very famous book. I, I was personally feeling a bit like. Oh, do we? Are we really doing this? Can we not mix it up and somehow do a different story? There's so many stories that haven't been told yet, and we're doing Emma again. So, I came in feeling very iffy about it, but then came out like pleasantly surprised. So, do they mix it up in any way? What What's fresh about this take? I think what I I liked about it is that it is it is a very traditional adaptation of Emma, but there is such a close understanding of the source material and. And there's a way that the director, Autumn DeWild, amplifies all these little moments in the book so that we as a modern day audience can really understand what was so witty and what was so charming about the original book. So it's an interesting one that it's so traditional, but it feels fresh just because it feels like she's bringing us back to Jane Austen's days as opposed to trying to bring it forward. Mm-hmm. David, this is riding on the coattails of the personal history of David Copperfield and Little Women, the peer dramas that have come out over the last couple of months. Does it Can it sit alongside those or is this just a latecomer? Uh, as, a, as an ultimate Little Women stand number one I, this is not worthy but you know it's it, it's a, I, I thought it was pretty pretty entertaining solid film I was slightly skeptical of like whether we needed a new one and maybe 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 my feelings in the when I came out was that it was you know pleasant pleasant film pleasant adaptation but not not vital in any way really I guess you know it, it does have a few interesting elements where it's kind of trying to couch the story in a more kind of English folksy vibe and there's they use like English folk music on the soundtrack which is something that you don't really expect from like a Jane Austen film you know um yeah the, the one of the, one of the other kind of key elements of it uh, the, the, it's something I've been thinking about a lot since seeing it was my f- sort of wrestling with my feelings about the costumes in the film 
the costumes are very they they feel very modern and it there is a kind of there are costume changes every scene and you're almost like it's the kind of big surprise of every new shot is like what's Emma going to be wearing next what kind of absolutely weird outlandish balancing act garment is she going to be kitted out in in the next scene we see and it is kind of this amazing torrent of of I mean you know the dress department must have been absolutely huge and you've got um, Johnny Flynn and all the other kind of guys in the film these rugged types sort of bounding around in these sort of mustard knee-length jackets and it all looked a little like I th- I think the sort of time and place felt a little bit kind of mixed up for me I, I wasn't I, there was times where I was like I'm not sure where or when this is you know we're kind of skit, skitting in and out of, of eras here and I don't know I, I, I felt I wanted something a bit more kind of pinned down to a, to a right. moment mm-hmm. I don't know I don't know if I agree well what I liked about it is that it was an acknowledgement that like Regency era fact I'm a big like history fashion person mm-hmm. <laughs> it was acknowledgement that you know, Regency fashion wasn't just white muslin dresses because that's every Jane Austen adaptation. Is a, they're in those, those same white dresses for two hours, and to see kind of that there was a lot of color at that time, and to see the way the braiding on Emma's coat was very authentic, and the use of the coral earrings was a big thing during the period. And obviously, it's a very amplified version of that. But I like that they picked up on on the colourful aspects of that time and just sort of like cranked it up a little bit because I, I feel like we never really get to see that side of it because they always make they always make that time period seem really boring, but it wasn't. It is, yeah, visually like kind of weirdly diverse and in the architecture as well because there's like a sequence where they have like a, a, a kind of ball in, a, in an old pub which is a bit more kind of brown and earthy and stoneware and then you have... Um, so, yeah, you have the Mr. Knightley's house, which is kind of you know old, old you know classic era old oil painting on the wall and like lots of kind of gilding and all that. And then you have Emma's house, which is like you know duck duck shell walls and you know it's, it looks more kind of Edwardian modern. It it's interesting because I mean obviously every everything is filmed in in I guess real locations and. Yeah, it, I, I, it's a, it's a weird, weird thing. Right. To, but um, you know, I just was like, where, where am I? When am I? <laughs> <laughs> tell, tell, tell us about the cast because something that you know we, we can do when we have these, you know, almost per generation we get adaptations of these great texts. We can look at previous casts compared to modern day casts and see the different energies, different types of actors we have. Of course, with Little Women, you can compare Timothy Chalamet to Christian Bale in the 90s. We have a, a, a lot of fresh faces here. Any highlights, anyone you'd like to mention bringing something new to the table? I think Anya Taylor-Joy was maybe my favourite Emma that I've ever seen right. because I think an issue with all the other Emmas is that they don't really play into the meanness because Emma, to me, like I almost don't like that book so much because she's so mean <laughs> she's so mean and and I feel like all the adaptations have always tried to sort of romanticize her and soften her and just sort of there's this really crucial picnic scene that I, I won't spoil but people who've read the book know how pivotal it is in the story and usually I think they they try and kind of play her down a little bit in that she's like oh well I didn't know what I was doing I'm so innocent and I liked that in this version it was like no I'm a mean girl 
And I said that because I'm a mean girl and now I'm going to get a little bit of comeuppance and a little bit of a scolding because that's what I deserve. So I liked that she she actually really sort of played into what I thought is such a big part of the character in the book. Right. It's true. You know, Anya Taylor-Joy, known for, of course, the split and glass and the witch, and you also have Mia Goth in here, most recently seen in Suspiria and High Life. David, I think you tweeted, didn't you, mm-hmm. that seeing Mia Goth now, you expect her to be flying off into a black hole. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I still don't have a handle on Mia Goth. Do you have a handle on her yet? She's got such a specific thing that she does. It, I just find it weird that like she's in such... Her CV is all over the place, <laughs> you know, like the time periods in this film. Mia Goth's CV is like over here, over here, over here. Um, yeah, I quite like her. I would totally agree with what you're saying about Anya Taylor-Joy and the fact that I think the one thing I, I did actually really like about this film is the kind of lingering sense of bitterness that you get from it and the fact that even in the end when, you know, the, the sort of star-crossed lovers finally get together, there is a sort of like... I think you do think, well, does she know? Is, is this deserving? Is this the fairy tale? There is a bit of kind of darkness to it mm. that, you, mm. that you may other not, otherwise not have had in, in a kind of other adaptations where people work very hard to kind of vindicate her in the end and, mm. uh, and make her seem like, you know, innocent despite her kind of like love of tittle-tattle and whatnot. And, uh, she isn't. She sucks. Yeah. She, I, I think this movie acknowledged that. I think, I think yeah, this is... This is I mean, it is a bit like that film because uh, I was a big fan of that film Thoroughbreds, mm. and I think that there is a there is a bit of a Thoroughbreds energy there, which An- Anya Taylor Joy is also in, and she's she's really good in it. And it's kind of like two dueling femme fatales, and I th- I think that her features as well, she has really kind of strong pronounced features, and, she, and there is a sort of like hint of something. She doesn't have that sort of nice. Like I, I'm, I'm walking on eggshells here. But I feel like she has those eyes that are like of secret, like secrets. She's filled with secrets. Exactly. Yeah. There's a, there is that kind of you know she's not she's not just like a super nice, prissy young girl. It's like there there is something like bubbling under. Let's put some scores on this. Clarice, I'll come to you first. So probably quite a low, almost a two. I think especially off of the back of Little Women, I was like, yeah, Emma, okay. But then an enjoyment four and probably also a four. Overall, David, I would say probably a two in anticipation. Actually, no, maybe a three in anticipation because I do. I I thought John. I love Johnny Flynn as well. I think he 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 needs a shout out as well. He was amazing in that film Beast, and he's re, he's really good here. I think he's he's someone who you know you see this film and you just, and you kind of just think, you know, maybe this isn't going to be the film that's going to spring him out right now, but. He's obviously going to be in something major quite soon, so yeah, I would say threes, threes across the board. Okay. I, I, it, it didn't quite. Again, just uh, referencing another recent Austin adaptation, Whit Stillman's Love and Friendship, which I think is amazing, and I, I almost, and, and I think it's a perfect example of taking someone who is you know an author who is done to death and bringing something fresh to it, but not necessarily in a way that's like ostentatious or surreal or experimental or anything like that he he just sort of focuses on the text and i i don't know i think i could have done with something that's a bit more kind of focused on themes and text yeah i i, I hopefully with stillman will do another film soon oh, <laughs> that's my please. that's my takeaway from this so there you have it david has recommended rocky and bullwinkle instead of sonic the hedgehog and love and friendship instead of emma that's just how i roll <laughs> <laughs> That was Emma rounding off the new releases this week. Up next, we have Film Club, which is Super Mario Brothers. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yes, it's back to 1993 now for Super Mario Brothers. This adaptation of the iconic Nintendo series is, shall we say, not very fondly remembered. Bob Hoskins and John Leguizamo star as Mario and Luigi, two Brooklyn plumbers transported to another dimension with the goal of saving Daisy from the slimy, scaly tyrant Cooper, played with impossible-to-direct energy from Dennis Hopper. It was a resounding flop on release, but how has it aged? First, let's hear a clip. They're brothers. They're plumbers. They're on the trail of a kidnapped princess and a mystical meteorite that gives anyone who possesses it the power to rule the universe. The amazing 90s-tastic trailer for Super Mario Brothers there. David, you said you were a bit more of a Mario kid than a Sonic kid. Did you go and see the film? I did. I remember my dad taking me and my brother to see it when it came out in the cinema upon our kind of extreme insistence. Uh, And I'm pretty certain he was (laughs) not that up for it. And I, I, I remember also coming out and sitting in the car and me and my brother being really excited about and and talking about how much we loved it and my dad being very kind of brutally honest about how awful it was and how we were wrong um that's just a a, a vague wisp of a memory but I, th- I think i think my dad might have been on to something <laughs> back then clarice i presume you'd be you were too young to see this at the time was this a yeah. first watch for you i <laughs> I'd seen half of it before. Okay. <laughs> because I went through a phase where I just obsessively watched really famously bad movies. Uh-huh. And I was trying to show it to a friend and we got halfway through and she was like, no. <laughs> Do you remember what point you checked out? <laughs> I think it was when they went into the other dimension. Right. 
I think the second she saw like the discount Blade Runner <laughs> scenario <laughs> that's going on there, she just went, no, thank you. And do you think that it's, it deserves that reputation that it has? Yes. It's not so bad it's good? It's not worthy no, it's, of reappraisal? No, I hated it so much. <laughs> Tell us a little bit, what, what, what did you hate so much about it? This is, again, my same problem with Sonic. I've never really played Mario, but I know that he's an Italian plumber who goes, it's a me, Mario. <laughs> and he has a brother, and the brother is named Luigi, but like none of those things are in this movie <laughs> he's not Italian he's Bob Hoskins with a Brooklyn accent Luigi is John Leguizamo who they're kind of brothers but they're also not because he adopted him so why are they they're not brothers then Bob he's Hoskins a, he's a is big brother adopted, in the sense of uh, but it's his dad <laughs> him it's his dad so that would be his dad why does he keep calling him his brother and i just i know yoshi is a dinosaur and yoshi's kind of in this but he looks like a jurassic park like broken puppet and, <laughs> and princess peach is like kind of in it but also not and yeah. i just why couldn't they just make it like the game <laughs> Why is it so hard for these people it's... to not make movies that are like the game? Well, I had to sort of delve back into the production history and it is absolutely fascinating. Mm. And and it's one of those things where, again, I mean, it, it, it kind of goes back to this this whole sort of Sonic thing about it, 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 things being switched around at the last minute. To cut a very, very long story short, there's one element of the production. So the, the two directors, Annabelle Yankel and Ro- Rocky Morton, completely untested were hired by Roland Joffe producer uh, on the back of them doing Max Hedrum which was the kind of you know digitized you know comedy face I don't think anyone today remembers yeah, Max Hedrum come on kids <laughs> Mac, this is a Max Hedrum podcast and um and and you know I think they'd done a lot of music videos so they were going to bring that sort of you know style and flash to it and they had ideas about this kind of, you know, we're going to do a more kind of darker post-industrial Blade Runner, you know, Total Recall, all that kind yeah. of stuff. And um, like they, they had built the sets, they were ready to go, they had the script and uh, Disney pre-bought the film as a, for distribution and then basically said, no, the film you're making isn't isn't right this needs to be for eight eight-year-olds play computer games it needs to be for eight-year-olds so they basically had all the sets all the all the special effects and they and they had to at short notice parlay it everything into a, a different film so it just became this kind of nightmare shoot and um my, my colleague adam woodward um was lucky enough to interview bob hoskins and uh, and he mentioned to me yesterday that he said the Bob Hoskins said to him the only thing the, he asked him if what if there's any films he regretted making and this was Super Mario Brothers was the only one. I think he's doing pretty good work here. Yeah. This is the end of his run of kids movies after Roger Rabbit. He had Roger Rabbit, Hook, and this. Well, I, I have to say uh, this is going to sound terrible, but I I, I actually had, didn't have a terrible time rewatching this. I've gone from like loving it as a child to hating it as a kind of mythical film to actually seeing it again and thinking I actually really quite like some of the sort of shonky practical effects and all this kind of weird fungus everywhere and um, I guess I, I, I really have a fondness for films that push practical yeah. or, or like early forms of digital special effects where you can you, you can really see the effects you can you can almost see the the layers of the of the image and how they're trying to they're, they're kind of imposing things onto figures and they're really pushing quite primitive 
digital means to their absolute breaking point. And th- uh, this film has loads of that. There's like the bit where there's a kind of devolution machine where they have their heads stuck up into it and they and you see them get kind of smaller. There's just there was just even the bits where he jump he jumps through the the portal and they and he goes through this kind of weird time tunnel thing, you know it was like terrible green screen but there was something about it that I was like I this is I like I'm I'm here for this you know uh, I didn't have a terrible time rewatching this either but that's because it part of it might be nostalgia I'm not sure if I saw this film when I was a kid I definitely had the soundtrack on tape and wore that out because it had Extreme and Megadeth all over it, plus George Clinton doing a cover of Was Not Was's Walk the Dinosaur. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which I have, I believe, is an all-timer. But the film is just so specific to the early 90s where Batman and Tim Burton was such a huge success in 1989 where major studios had no clue how to follow that. And they didn't make comic book movies. They instead did pulp movies, video game adaptations, cartoon adaptations. And this slots in perfectly with, I think, a run of massive failures and flops and follies like... Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Dick Tracy. I mean, that wasn't a flop, but I mean, of course, Dick Tracy. Dick there. Tracy was a flop and a folly. Um, but Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, stylistically, um, this definitely fits in with them, probably because of uh, the practical effects, as you said, David. This, yeah, this. I think Turtles was one of their. I I, I can't remember. I think Turtles was nineteen ninety, or, or at least just before this. Yeah, but the, the, that was one of their sort of style goals as well but you go back and rewatch Turtles now that doesn't necessarily hold up that was so much of its time um, but it's this this period where music video artists would have the opportunity to make what I think here is you know, B-grade Paul Verhoeven I, I definitely got a strong Total Recall vibe from the alternate dimension and Dennis Hopper at that phase where apparently you know Jenkel and Morton are on record saying he would just not be directed he wouldn't listen to them on set so there are certain shots here where they have an extreme close-up of him where you can't see what he's saying, and they're, they're clearly just reusing B-roll just to fill space. There's this amazing moment that I really laughed loud at where he's got his two little kind of bumbling henchmen and, and Mario and Luigi are out in the desert or something. And he's like, go and get Mario and Luigi or I'll kill you. And it's like the most blunt force line reading it is proper kind of frank booth out of blue velvet style like terrifying like you, you he tees up the line and he pauses for some kind of you know funny pun or something or or or, or some kind of set you know reference and the fact that he just then says i'll kill you it's just like chilling <laughs> chilling stuff super mario brothers <laughs> A film, Look for, out a for, film for eight-year-olds. I think you know how there was that whole thing about Taffin, where it was like, uh, you know, some <laughs> you maybe you shouldn't be living maybe here. Maybe you shouldn't be living here. I, I, I really think there should be a, a, a meme of of the Dennis Hopper when he says, "I'll kill you." <laughs> um, of course, this is widely regarded as one of the worst films and worst video game films ever made. Not that there are many good ones, but Clarice, any recommendations? Any game movies that might be good? I mean, it's not great but i thought the tomb raider with Alicia vikander was like oh. decent which i think is as I really good like as that. we yeah, can get yeah, yeah. it's decent what did that, that was just because it was a straight up indiana jones pastiche like yeah the game is. and yeah. i think as well they were smart in choosing because the rebooted lara croft games are quite strong on storytelling and so to actually pick a game that has 
a story there and actually following that story mm-hmm. <laughs> instead of doing something completely different that has nothing to do with Tomb Raider. Like, I think it's really that simple <laughs> in terms of video game adaptations is you find a good story from a video game and then you make that story. <laughs> You don't invent something weird and different and has nothing to do with the video game. That's why I quite like the Silent Hill film, which is quite divisive. But I think that perfectly translates the tone and feel of a survival horror game into a film. It does have a lot of Sean Bean being very bad, but the whole actual Silent Hill strand recreates elements from that game really well. Yeah, it's pretty creepy. I'm actually a massive fan of the... uh, Resident Evil films. Oh, but that's a pure example of an auto, of a director, a filmmaker taking a franchise and going off in their own direction. Yeah, that has nothing to do with the games after a while. No, no, mm. no. But I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I, I had a, I had like a duvet day once where I was really ill, and I think I watched them all. And uh, it is really amazing how like how they progress. Like the first one is fairly kind of straight, running around in a cave and there's zombies, and then you then you get all this kind. Of, it is like the kind of alien movies where you get all this kind of backstory about the Umbrella Corporation and Alice and clones and, and, and you know, all this, it, it goes kind of weird, you know, and there's, and there's, I think it's Resident Evil 5, correct me if I'm wrong here. The film. There, right. there, there is one that is genuinely amazing, which is like where um, Milia Jovovich, there is like, she, she's going into these different like, Real, virtual realities and having to sort of battle zombies in these it's in Tokyo but she's in it's like the holodeck of out of Star Trek version of these different worlds that she has to kind of conquer and it's like amazing Resident Evil <laughs> do you think that Paul W. Sanderson is the great filmmaker we've slept on uh, I, I, <laughs> I no I think he's pretty good I love um, Event Horizon and uh, uh Three Musketeers. I, uh, there's some there's some key titles like Pompeii and Three Musketeers that I haven't that I'd need to fill in before I could come back to you on the. But the Resident Evil franchise, that's his yeah, masterwork. The Resident Evil franchise is his kind of. Yeah. I'll go and rewatch them. I remember the second one being particularly terrible, but I, th- I hear it's only up 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 from there. There is, I think, there is a kind of odd odd numbers are, are good. I think two and four are bad. Well, listeners, we're expecting the definitive ranking of the Resident Evil film franchise for next episode. Please let us know at the usual channels. That is at Truth and Movies on Twitter, Truth and Movies at TCOLondon.com via email, or at the comment section at LWLies.com slash podcast. Next week, we have the new Steve Coogan vehicle, Greed. We have Little Joe, directed by Jessica Hausner. And because that film has a terrifying plant in it, we're going back to 1983's black and white musical version of Little Shop of Horrors. Let us know what you think of that film at the usual channels. Clarice, David, thank you so much for joining me this week. I'm Michael Eder, and as always, this has been a 7 Digital production. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 